Welcome back to a brand new season of the Panty Personals. I am back and slowly beginning to feel like my old self again, enjoying all the wonders of being out and about again, and not just as far as the supermarket. I even got to leave the country recently and I hardly knew myself. I had to stop myself kissing the fella at border control. And speaking of borders, my first guest in this second season of the podcast is no stranger to borders, because she grew up straddling one, the Armagh Monaghan border. Meet singer-songwriter Danny Larkin, who comes from a place called Madden in County Armagh, and who is very much a rising star in music and enjoying a phenomenal and busy year since the release of her album Notes for a Maiden Warrior in June. And indeed, she will be rushing off to a gig straight after our chat today. Danny describes herself as a queer folk artist. She loves storytelling and folklore and brings that into her songs, some of which she's going to share with us today. But she's also someone who has used music in a very powerful way in her work around conflict resolution in places like Palestine and Colombia. Danny Larkin, welcome! Oh, thank you so much for having me and what an introduction. Oh, well, d- super delighted to have you. I've been down a sort of Danny Larkin hole the last few days. I'm on YouTube and so on. Um, but before we do get started, the producer, Helen, here tells me that we've met before. And now, is it terrible <laughs> that I don't... I've been racking my brains. Where did we meet It before? was Well, it was a very brief encounter. So, you know, all is forgiven. Uh, in 2013 or 14, it was maybe in St. Andrews. You know, she, Helen said to me that it was in Scotland. I was racking of all the times I've been to Scotland and then I suspicion, I thought maybe that time I was in St. Andrews. What were you doing in St. Andrews? I was doing a master's, my master's in political science in Stirling. But my girlfriend at the time was doing her master's in philosophy at St. Andrews. So it was a lovely little love triangle for a little while there. And uh, it brought me to, to see you. So, And it was at a very challenging time of my life. I was just coming out and I was finding that quite hard. And then to see you take the stage and to speak so eloquently, I was completely transfixed, but we'll I'll leave the fangirling for there. <laughs> well, you know, I don't remember a lot about that particular event or anything. My main experience in Scotland is Edinburgh and Edinburgh mm-hmm. Festival, mm-hmm. which of course happens in the summer. But my God, if you've ever visited Edinburgh in the winter, it is hard. It's bleak. It's yeah. bleak. Well, well, actually, what age are you? I am 31. 31. Yeah. Okay, so that's you were doing a master's in 2014. 2014, yes, yeah, so like I was that. 24, 24, 25, yeah. Well, unlike a lot of people in our sort of business, the business of show and all of that, um, you've had a pretty busy year. Yeah, it's been full. It's been a full year and... I've kind of had to really keep my feet on the ground and thanks to my manager, Lauren McCabe, who really is very solid in helping me do that. Um, Since releasing the album Notes for a Maiden Warrior, I guess my landscape has completely changed and it's taken me a little while to catch up with myself between playing in the London Palladium to gigging, doing folk festivals throughout this island and just meeting people again and that sense mm-hmm. of community that we can really hold for each other. It's the London been Palladium incredible. reference there is you were supporting Snow Patrol, right? Yeah, I think in one week there I was in London, West Cork and Doolin and uh, I didn't know what to do with myself <laughs> by the end of it. As it so happens, I was at the London Palladium last week <gasps> because I am currently doing a little project about Danny LaRue who, because you're under 35, I will tell you, was the world's first superstar, you know, gigantic mainstream um, drag queen who was born in Cork, but uh, his family moved him to slap bang in the middle of Soho in the 1930s when he was nine years old. Um, So, uh, I'm yes, I'm rediscovering Danny LaRue on behalf of Ireland. (laughs) And uh, he ran for two years at the Palladium in a one man show, which is an, an incredible achievement. That's stunning. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing the project. Oh, well, I'll let you know <laughs> when it's all out. Um, so so my lockdown, you know, cause here we are, we're just sort of emerging from the pandemic. Well, fingers crossed, touch wood, all of that. Um, but mine, I think in common with, with a lot of the sort of artsy types that I've met, was a struggle to get anything mm-hmm. properly creative done. Mm-hmm. For me, I think that was mostly because 
know, every day sort of just blended into the same grey mush. And so there was nothing to spark my interest or creativity. But I assume you were still working on the album all through the pandemic. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I had just finished recording the album on the 13th of March 2020. So everything had been recorded. So it needed mixed and mastered after that. But in theory, you know, one of the songs in the album, The Magpie, I've been singing that since 2013. And the magpie I has a nest filled with tired and when she So, you know, for some of these songs that people are getting to hear for the first time, they've been with me for many, many years. But the kind of work, I guess, of being a creative person around that. And, you know, when I started playing music, there wasn't Spotify and there wasn't social media. So it's been a big shift for me to understand <laughs> how to present myself in that way. So it was a lot of learning in, in that way. And um, while the album was recorded, I found myself just really wanting to make sure that it was absolutely the way that I wanted it. So it took another six months before I'd even shared it with anyone other than myself and my engineer, you know. And, you know, your own stuff is folky and it's... It's you, and you, you know. So what? How do? You, how does that translate when you're on the stage in the Palladium opening for Snow Patrol? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. And I guess the thing that it comes back to for me, like I wanted to make a record that I could play myself, or I I wanted it to feel like people who listened to it, it felt like I was sitting in the room with them at a session, and that's the quality that I wanted. And when it comes to stepping on stage, then all of that just comes to life because there's that's just what the truth is. And it's the truth for me. Mm. So I can stand up and show up in that space and it's present. And I had the very great fortune of sharing that stage with my best friends as well. Um, Laura was playing cello and, and George was playing percussion. And to look around and sing in a three part harmony with your best friends yeah. to, you know, two and a half thousand people like there is nothing more heartwarming for me and if people get a glimpse of that of the album I'd be delighted mm. now I mentioned in the introduction that you grew up you know straddling the border essentially and I know you're a Gemini now I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a big horoscope person myself but many people are like it's funny when you when I meet people from the border but also when I meet people from other borders around the world um I feel like they, they have a particular quality or outlook on life mm. um, because they're very used to uh, being in an in-between place or they're very used to seeing things from two different perspectives, maybe. Mm. Do you think that that trite observation <laughs> rings true for you? I think it absolutely does. I feel very seen. And for me, anyway, it took until I left home where I grew up to understand that not everybody thought in two ways at once or to say, OK, I see that that is a rule, but that's just a made up rule by one mm. set of standards or set of law. It's different in another place. So it plants a seed. I wouldn't say totally of mischief, but like of being like not accepting the first thing that yep. comes to you. And um, there's always a bit of mischief anyway, I have to be honest. <laughs> well, I'm going to stretch this analogy possibly past its breaking point because I do think that being a queer person in a heteronormative world does something similar. Mm. Um, that you're more open to seeing the world from a different perspective than most of the people around you. And I think in general, that's a good thing because it allows you to be free of really hard constructs or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think someone who lives right on a border is forced always to think, you know, dually. Mm -hmm. Like, 
how does this person might see it that way, but my neighbor might see it in a different way. Were you conscious growing up that your situation wasn't the normal? Not at all. Not at all. And my queerness didn't come to me until my 20s either. So, you know, I even still I'm very much of the place that I grew up in. That's yeah. a very big part of me. And and uh, those constructs as well. I mean, just because I know that I can see both or more than one side, it doesn't mean that they still don't carry some kind of power. And um, I think that's the interest in intersection where queerness comes in because it just shines a whole light of possibility. Yeah. And with borders, there are two sides. It's not, you know, it's very rare that there are three or very rare that there are four. But with queerness, the possibilities are endless. And I think that's something that's pretty beautiful. I mean, it's one of my, you know, little drums that I like to bang a lot, you know, because, you know, when I was younger, what was most exciting for me about finding the queer community was the fact that they were sort of a self-selecting and quite a radical group at that time. Mm -hmm. Because in order to join the community at that time, you know, it was so separated from, you know, the Mughal world, you know, that that they were quite radical. And so there were, you know, in queer communities, there was all sorts of experimental, you know, ideas or ways of being happy. And whereas I think in general, most straight people didn't because they were presented with, um, you know, marriage and, you know, all that stuff was already laid out for them. Mm-hmm. And I liked that sort of experimental quality. Are there other ways of being happy, other ways of living your life? Now, your border experience was also in Madden, Mm. which is a pretty tiny village. According to my uh, deep research, there's only about 200 people living there. Yeah. Um, So, you know, and it's interesting, you said that, you know, Madden is is a very big part of who you are, even though it's such a tiny place. Um, What was it like growing up there? Mm. And could you have stayed there? Mm. Oh, thank you for those questions. No one has ever asked me that before. And what can I say of Madden? It's my heart. It's my home. It's where I grew up. It's where my family, my grandparents still live. Everybody there knows me. Um, And very much rooted in a sense of community and love being honest like the love and community that I felt growing up and growing up in Madden is something that is completely you know laid a strong foundation for me into adulthood of what to accept in love Mm -hmm. and what to accept in community and how to build that community and how to show up whether that's in friendships or in romantic relationships or in our wider communities however they might intersect and I, that's I'm so immensely proud of those things. I, you know, I could I couldn't possibly ask for any more than that. Um, could I have stayed there? Not at the time that I left. I was going to university and, and I've, I've lived away since. Um, it's often a question I ask myself because I'm not a city person. I'm a I'm not even a country person. I, I grew up on a council estate in the countryside, so you know, I'm not a I'm not a farmer by any stretch of the imagination. Like we were chatting a little bit before of running off and joining a commune. That feels very lovely. But, you know, I still and now as an adult, I really those things are dear to me in terms of natural space and quiet and being present in those ways. But there's such a bigger planet, there's such a bigger world and I only want to see it and be in it and show up and like I think the rhyme is Thursday's child is far to go and I was born on a Thursday. So, you know, I'm sitting in front of you now. <laughs> well, you know, I have a similar experience. Mm. Ballinrobe County Mayo isn't quite mm. as small as Madden, but, you know, it might as well be. You know, and I think we were very, very, very lucky to grow up in a place like that where, mm-hmm. you know, you can run around wild all summer. Your mother isn't worried about, you know, where you are, what you've gotten up to. Other people in the town also have an eye on you. Um, There are animals and trees and things to climb over. And, you know, and you're, you know, you're friends with a broader range of people and ages and all that that you might be in the city because, you know, in a way you're forced to be in in a community like that. You know, and for me, I I often wonder, could I have stayed there or whatever? Mm -hmm. You know, I think for me, I couldn't 
because I needed some other things. But I absolutely treasure the fact that I got to grow up in a place like that. Could you go back now, do you think? You know, my my parents are elderly and I am very lucky that I have three sisters and a brother all within the locality still. Mm -hmm. And so the hard work of, you know, caring for elderly parents, Mm -hmm. you know, has fallen to them and they are incredibly generous and, you know, don't make me feel bad for doing so much less than they do. Um, But but I, I, I often think if I'd been an only child, mm-hmm. I would have had to move back to Ballinrobe a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And that would have turned my life upside down. Mm. Um, I would have done it, of course, and tried not to complain or anything. But the life that I chose, and I would go far, as far as saying the life that I needed, mm-hmm. it wasn't available to me in Ballinrobe. Yeah. And um, so if I had to go back now... I, it would be a big wrench, mm. even though I, I love the town and, you know, it's a great place. I mean, maybe when I'm older, I could. Mm-hmm. But at the age that I am, when I'm still productive, <laughs> um, it would be hard. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have three younger sisters. So I'm the oldest. Oh, we're really going for it, aren't we? We are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am the oldest of three sisters and I'm also the, the oldest grandchild on my mum's side and the second oldest grandchild on my dad's side. So, yeah, big, strong Gemini person. <laughs> but like if it came that you, you know, did have to return to Madden, mm-hmm. would you be comfortable and, and easy with that? It's something that I think about a lot. I I would absolutely do it. And I think I would find it hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, and I mean, the other obvious question is you're sitting here in front of me. You're a proud queer woman with your shaved head and your (laughs) your, um, box shoulder jacket. Um, Would you be comfortable being... You know, the only queer in the village in Madden. Maybe you would be. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I would be the only queer in the village anymore. And yes, I absolutely would be. I would be now. Yeah. Um, I have no fear. Yeah. And that is an incredible thing. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, I at one time absolutely would not have been comfortable. Mm-hmm. But I go to Ballon Road now and they have a gay group at the local youth club. <gasps> There are, you know, gay kids who know each other as other gay kids in school. It's an entirely different world and yeah. it's great to see. Let's have a song, shall yes, we? Because absolutely. then that's essentially why I brought <laughs> you. Not, not to psychoanalyze you, but um, tell us what the song is. It's called Bloodthirsty. This is a song about the hunter and the hunted and the strength that lives in feminine energy um, that we can all experience if that's something that we want to. Um, So yeah, it goes like this. Thank you. 
bloodthirsty And how many've gone this road Returning home so queer To faces long known How strange they do Magical. Thank you so much. I want to actually get into your other sort of work for a bit, if I may, because you are obviously a working musician, but you have this very interesting background in conflict resolution and so on. Well, give me the background to that first. Yeah, well, it started in Scotland. So that's where I did my master's in political science in Stirling. And after a year there, I realized that I wasn't going to learn what I needed to learn in books. And I was set to do a PhD in St. Andrews, actually, and I respectfully decided not to. And it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my entire life, because I while I really enjoy learning in a very specific, you know, perhaps academic way, which I also had to learn how to do. Music is such a core and fundamental part of who I am and how I exist and I just knew that there had to be a way to combine those two things and I and drawn on that sense of community and that community that I came from and knowing the power that community has to create change. So I came back to Belfast and I started an internship with an organisation who led me through facilitation training and then I did uh, training in peace building and uh, how to work through gender-based violence in Romania and then I went to Palestine and then I came back for a bit and did more training and went to Colombia and but music it's all rooted in music and music and creativity as the oh it's not a medium it's it's the way it's the way to express and to heal and for me music is medicine and that's the long and the short of it. Mm. <laughs> the, I mean, the obvious inference here is you're from Northern Ireland. You're <laughs> f- practically, you know, from the, the border itself. Mm. I mean, I, I'm assuming that played into your decision to get into all this. It did and it didn't in the same way that, you know, you asked me earlier, what, did it feel like growing up in the border wasn't a normal thing? Like I didn't have that awareness until I left and you know, my my parents and my family did a very good job of keeping their children in the dark about many, many things. And um, it's only as an adult that I've come to understand that not everybody thinks the way that we think on the border or not everybody has the same thought processes if they see something on the street or, you know, it certainly is a different way of going. But um, it's one that I carry with me lightly, as lightly as I can. And it also is a great sense of it's not good enough to just sit by and accept things as they are because, you know, people are oppressed in far too many ways to allow that to continue to happen. But do you think if you arrive in a part of the world where there's conflict or whatever and you say, I'm from Northern Ireland. In a way, it must sort of, or does it, kind of open a door in a way to people? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I guess it's been such a long time because of the pandemic of, since traveling. But I can say the first training that I went on to in, in Romania, I think I was the only, one of the only people there who could be described as coming from or grown up in, in a, a zone of direct violence or a conflict zone. And I didn't realize that my starting point for the conversation was different to everybody else's, you know, and I guess that would maybe be the, you know, in the same way that if we are having a conversation and we are both queer, then the starting point is different from someone I was having a conversation with who's straight, you know. So um, again, drawing crude parallels between queerness and conflict, but I think there's (laughs) learning there nonetheless. Yeah, because one of the things that really amazes me as the years go on, you know, is how quickly 
people, you know, generations go on and forget things and everything. Because when I was, you know, younger, a teenager, my 20s and that traveling, and anyone would ask me where I was from, it didn't matter where in the world I was, as soon as you said Ireland, you know, the one thing they all knew about Ireland was, you know, I remember like French teenagers would go, you're making, you know, gun noises. Yeah. Um, and now that is not the case mm. anymore. You know, my own um, fella is from Brazil and he had no concept, you know, of Ireland as, you know, being at war, mm. which is the, the was the perception, you know, just one generation ago. I mean, you've been to quite, you mentioned Romania, you've also been to uh, Colombia um, and Israel and Palestine. You spent a, some time there, you know, on the surface, I guess, Palestine has the most obvious parallels mm. and with the Northern Irish situation. Tell me about that experience. I'll do my very best. Um, my time in Palestine is something that I carry with me every day. And I... Again, try to carry it lightly, but it's it's not always a light thing to carry. And I say that with an immense amount of privilege, being able to leave and being able to close the door on, on certain things. And, you know, going to Palestine was my first trip outside of Europe, my first time going away completely alone. Uh, I was going to volunteer in a peace education centre in the West Bank, uh, all doing music. So... Um, a lot of voice work, a lot of singing and yeah, a lot of falafel, a lot of very beautiful friends um, and a big wake up call to aspects of white saviorism that I think still very much continue. Um, and also then for my own self and my own learning coming back what those experiences, what what marks that they leave and, and how do I work through that, not only as a person, but then as a person who can um, show up as part of community and, and hold the same spaces. So complicated is the short answer. Um, eternally grateful for the kindness and love that was shown to me and something that will never, ever leave me. You know, one of my, you know, weirdly in the sort of the way that my funny life has turned out, one of the weird things I end up doing a lot of is going abroad to the Department of Foreign Affairs. Mm. It's with Irish Aid, which mm. is operates through the Department of Foreign Affairs. Okay. And Irish Aid is like is a spectacular organization. Um, and one I think Irish people need to be more aware of because the small amount of our tax money that Irish Aid gets to use does spectacularly important and brilliant work in all sorts of weird places in the world that Ireland doesn't, most Irish people have never even thought of. It's all good work, if you know what I mean. And also, it's totally you know, non-party political. Mm. They don't give a damn who's in government. They continue on doing their work. And I get to see a lot of rights-based projects and speak to people and, and, you know, in these places and also a lot of HIV work. Um, and Going to these places, you know, say Mozambique, mm -hmm. where Irish Aid does a lot of work around HIV and pregnant women, or in places where it's incredibly difficult and dangerous to be a member of the LGBTI plus community. And I take two things away from it. One is I come back with a really strengthened appreciation for how lucky I am to have been born in Ireland mm. and to be from Ireland. And also that then, you know, gives you a wider perspective because sometimes when you're here and maybe especially during the pandemic, you can start to think everything's terrible. Everything's mm -hmm. terrible. We're the worst of that. We're the worst of this. We're the worst of everything. But then sometimes you go to other places and you think, oh, my God, we're so lucky. Um, so it's that. And it also makes me maybe perhaps more keenly aware of my own Irishness, mm. uh, too. When you are going to places... That, I mean, you're not going to places because they're they're fun and have a wonderful beach. You're going to these places because they are in conflict. Um, do you think that your Irishness plays a role when you're there? 
That is a very good question. It's a big question, though, yeah. so I don't, I don't know if there's an answer. I mean, maybe just to clarify, what do you mean by Irishness? And then I can give a fuller answer. Well, when I go to these places, for example, if I go to somewhere where it's incredibly difficult and dangerous to be a queer person, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I meet a 17-year-old dyke there, mm-hmm. and I get to tell her sort of the story of Ireland and and that it feels like a practical good thing that I can do mm. because it honestly and truly gives her hope in a seemingly hopeless situation mm-hmm. because it proves to her that actual you know real change and dramatic change is possible mm-hmm. and it's possible in a relatively short period of time mm-hmm. because when I was 17 Ireland wasn't that different <laughs> to the situation she's in now mm. and I don't think an English person could go and tell her the same story and have Mm. the same effect. Mm -hmm. And I don't also think necessarily in a lot of the places, um, just because of Ireland's history and their history, you know, especially if you're in, say, some of the former Soviet republics or something, they are more willing to hear an Irish story Mm. simply because of our own tangled history. Mm -hmm. And so in those situations, or even in a place like Mozambique and you're, meeting women who are queuing up for meds under a tree in a makeshift hospital um, that Irish Aid is supporting. I also think they hear my story differently Mm -hmm. because I'm Irish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that. And thank you for sharing all of that and for clarifying, because so often parts of conversations are missed and I wouldn't have picked up on all of what you've said. And that just gives me hope. I think the thing that we often leave out of the conversation here is colonialism and we don't maybe call it colonialism anymore, but I guess wider Irish identity has a great experience of colonialism and that colonialism is something that has reverberated throughout the world. And so there are starting points for conversations for people who have lived under colonialism that are different from those who haven't. Mm. And so with that, I can say being from the border and, you know, thinking in two places, as it were, um, absolutely informs. I find it hard in in Palestine to think in two two spaces when I was there. Um, But and as well, because in the north, there's a more recent history of violence people have that in our collective memory and that's stronger so those are starting points that someone from somewhere else say for example england wouldn't ordinarily have Mm. so yes in in short you know and recently we had um my good friend brona gallagher on the podcast and we were talking about you know dairy and growing Mm -hmm. up there and the marks that that might leave on you and so on but one of the things that was hanging over the conversation was was the fact that actually it's not all resolved in Northern Ireland. These mm. th- there is still conflict, um, which occasionally threatens to break the surface again. And also, you know, as a queer person sitting in front of me from Northern Ireland, you know, a lot of the you know the decision makers in Northern Ireland are are virulently anti queerness. I won't name any names, but you know the ones I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, so so so. In a sense, there is still an unresolvedness, mm. you know, conflict resolution. But there's a there's an unresolvedness about the situation in Northern Ireland, both from the traditional conflict, but also for its queer citizens. Um, they're still often in conflict with the state in a way. Does that weigh on you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that saddens me most is the sheer amount of work and healing that queer people need to do in order to even show up for themselves in their lives. Like, I'm actually, like, that is something that really saddens me. And those things are amplified when it comes to living in a conflict zone or, you know, when it comes to I don't know. I don't even know what else I can't even think right now. Mm. Um, 
But the special and powerful and strengthening thing about the North and this island as a whole, I, you know, we really moving beyond partition is something I'm very keen to do, uh, at least in, in language and um, if it's possible. And the thing is, there are so many more of us with so many more strong hearts because the things that we have worked for has been a very different story from from the South in the, in the first instance. But secondly, they can't be taken away because it's that same thing that we spoke about earlier of we don't have fear when we go back home anymore because that's something that we have created for ourselves. And that can that can never be taken away. Um, I mean, it's also really helpful to see organizations like Outburst Arts, the, I mean, incredible queer arts festival like in in the north, I think it's the only queer international queer arts festival on this island. And, um, you know, the DUP Abomination Opera was an incredible piece of work that they produced. You're involved in Outburst, aren't you? I am not directly involved, no, but I did do some work with them last year for the festival. But having that sense of community in terms of arts is something that really moves the conversation onward, forward, creates those spaces for healing that we need to do for ourselves before we can possibly reach out as perhaps mm. queer citizens to sort out other things. And obviously your whole gig is the healing power of music. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm very aware, keenly aware that this conversation has been quite um, heavy. When, you're, when you're, your spirit in the room is not heavy, you're oh, not thanks. a big dark cloud. Um, and actually... You know, one of the things that actually is kind of exciting about mm. where Northern Ireland is now is that it is still in flux, in, in change. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and things in flux, there's always an excitement there about, you know, what it can become, what it will become and, and all that. Are, are you hopeful about all of that? 100%. I couldn't be more hopeful. Like Belfast, which is where I live, um, has changed so much even in the past three years, two years, even in the past year in the pandemic. And Belfast isn't all of the north, certainly not. Um, but how that reverberates and the spaces that that creates in the time that I've lived there is ex- very exciting. And, you know, I I swim quite a bit uh, and I was swimming the other night uh, at nighttime with a friend and I was just like, oh, here is sheer joy and realms of possibility. And that is absolutely how I feel, not only about the North, but this island in general, um, because we're connecting with each other in ways that we haven't before. And with change, you know, everything is always changing. We, we never sit still. Um, but if we can find that change and grow within that, who knows? We, I might be joining that commune yet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you a bit more about the music and, and connect to this next song because you're going to do a song for us called um, Samson and Goliath. Yeah. Which are the kind of nicknames, aren't they, that the that Belfast people give the two Harland and Wolf cranes that we're so used to seeing and everything. But much of your music incorporates mythology and story and all of that. And... Um, and, and obviously there there's a biblical reference there, but there's a lot of Celtic mythology too. Um, you know, I heard you, you say something about, um, you know, the three stages of woman being maiden and your, obviously your album um, includes a maiden, um, maiden, mother and crone. And I always feel like I, I, I would just want to skip the first two and go straight to crone. <laughs> <laughs> and crones have all the fun. Yeah, um, tell me about the song Samson and Goliath. Yeah, Samson and Goliath. It's uh, it's a testament to Belfast. Um, I wrote it when I was living in Scotland. And um, when I would get the flight back into Belfast, they were the first things that I would see. And I just that sense of being held, that sense of coming home. Uh, was really special for me. Sure, will I sing it for you? Oh, absolutely. We'll give it a good <laughs> Isn't it funny? Well, Belfast it has your cranes that you see, and in Dublin we have the two chimneys that everybody looks out for.
front of you Battle in the storm What have I become For I am no Samson Goliath can bring One of the great privileges and lovely things about doing this is getting to sit in a room up close with people ah. playing music just for you. Ah. Well, it is just for you. Well, you know, it feels that listening. way. <laughs> well, yeah. but, but in the moment, it feels like it's just for me. So talk to me about the music. The album, yes. it references warriors and maidens. Um, yeah, notes for maiden warriors. So the notes are the songs themselves. The maiden, like you'd, you'd mentioned earlier, um, refers to the cycle of womanhood in, in mythology and folklore, maiden mother crone. So it's the first cycle. And the warrior is the, you know, I'm from Ulster, so it's the warrior archetype, you know, and it kind of, the title, the songs themselves, plays on this idea of what it might mean to be a warrior, what that might look like, subverting that in some way from a traditional masculine warrior archetype of Cúhullin, for example, the myth of Cúhullin, to the warrior, the female warrior, the feminine warrior, very much based on uh, energy rather than gender. You know, there are two songs. Aoife is one song in the album, Aoife being the mother of the children of Lur or the stepmother 
of the Children of Lair. And there's a song that kind of combines Jewish folklore and Irish folklore um, in exploring that that narrative that is often left out. And the same with the red, Maka's return. So Maka being the goddess of war and transformation in Celtic mythology is also the namesake of my home county, Armagh, Ardwacha. And so the red is an imagining of what it would be like if Maka returned. For me, those stories were fundamentally a part of my, me growing up, you know. Were they? I mean, in your house, mm. like, were, were they the stories you were reading or yeah, being told? Yeah, the stories I was reading and also, you know, we would we would gather every Sunday evening. It sounds very romantic, but uh, it's really just another way of having the crack, you know, because... Like, I don't know about yourself, but there's not very much to do, really, um, other than be with the people that you're surrounded by. And so, you know, one of the ways to spend time together was to share stories or sing songs. Or if you'd written a play that week, then you were going to perform the whole thing, you know. And, you know, my, my family were very encouraging in that. So we're thinking on Sunday evenings, you've all gathered around and <laughs> performed many plays and you told each other mythology stories. Like <laughs> Yeah, when I say it out loud from time to time, I kind of go, yeah, no, that's not what everybody does. But uh, what does everybody do? I still don't know. I still haven't figured that out. Well, you know, when I was kids, so we grew up literally next door to an old graveyard, like very Mm -hmm. overgrown graveyard. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I was closer to a dead body than I was to my sister, you know, (laughs) you know, um, you know, because my my bed was literally my bedroom was literally right beside the wall to the graveyard. But um. It had all these overgrown graves and I, I, I used to sort of laugh, but I also loved the fact that when we were kids, we all played Grania Whale in the graveyard, you know, Grace and Mally. We would use the, the graves as the ships and we would then, <laughs> the others would be pirates and we'd be attacking each other, you know, on those big, you know, table type tombstones yeah, yeah. and everything. And of course, as well, kids, I didn't think anything of that. But, but looking back, I loved the fact that Grania Whale was so big in our imagination mm-hmm. as kids. We all wanted to be Grania Whale. I still want to be, you know, I mean, I want to be a pirate. I, am I a pirate? I'm not sure. I'll get my pirate wings yet. But it is, it's in, I think that's the thing. It's in our collective imagination, right? Rather than it being a sit down here and listen to this story. It was more, oh, don't go near that tree because your uncle saw a fairy there. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. That it's just part of how we communicate and part of how we relate to each other. At least it was for me. And it's funny that you say that, like I grew up next to graveyards all of my life um, until I moved to the city and there isn't a graveyard around me. So it's a funny, I think it also, this relationship with, with death as well is an interesting one that we don't often get to explore. The album is divided into two halves. So the first half is this kind of darker side of mythology and folklore. The second half is light, it is love um, in its different forms. And then the album ends with three wise women in, in mystery. So, yeah, I I have to say I'm really, I'm really proud of it. Mm. I really am. And um, it seems people also seem to enjoy it. So what, you know, what more could you possibly ask for? Yes, no, it's it's lovely. And even me Brazilian fella has been getting very ah. much into it. And he doesn't always, you know, connect with all of these things, but he absolutely mm. does with the album so what is next for Danny Larkin that is a very good question well I have a tour so back in April of this year we recorded the live album version of Notes for Maiden Warrior in the Folk Museum and that was put together by Culture Ireland and the Irish Arts Centre in New York so I'm releasing an exclusive single from that day which I'm very excited about tour in England where am I going? Manchester, Newcastle, Bristol, Woking, London. And then I have an Irish tour. So Belfast, Dublin, Dundalk, Casablini, Conley's in West Cork, Winthrop Avenue in Cork. And then a couple of wee other things that are definitely rolling about in my brain. But And is this all happening before the end of the year? This is all happening before the end of the year. So you are busy. I'm a busy woman. And you're leaving us and going to Castle Blaney tonight with the Hothouse Flowers. Yes. Is that right? And I love the Hothouse Flowers, so I can't wait. Uh, so do we. We've had 
Viagra and Liam um, both oh. on the show separately um, yeah. on different ones. So, yes. Um, thank you so much, Danny Larkin, mm. for uh, gracing us with your mythological presence. <laughs> oh, wow. I need to write that down. Like. <laughs> I, am, I very much enjoyed our chat. Mm. Yes. Um, despite um, it not being full of laughs. <laughs> It's the Gemini, you get one of either side, you know. Well, well <laughs> I, I, we've gotten a bit of both, thank God. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, and certainly everybody here is looking forward to seeing what you're doing next. Anyway, so Danny Larkin, thank you for being with me on Handy Personals. And everybody out there, you can check out the videos of today's performances online at pantasocracy.ie, um, where you'll find links to the YouTube videos and so on. And of course, please, please share the audio podcast with your mates. And um, feel free to chat back to us on Twitter and Instagram. All of those links and more are at the pantasocracy.ie website. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Danny. It's been fun and talk to you soon. Uh, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Danny. That's been lovely. 